Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 188. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners. Get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to theslowpoisoner at gmail.com. That's theslowpoisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. Sell now is Mark Arlo's latest book called Pac-Man, the first animated show based upon a video game. This book tells the story of Pac-Man phenomenon and goes through the entire history of the Hanna-Barbera Animation Studios, the history of the video games, pre-Pac-Man, the history of Pac-Man, the character, the video game, the spin-offs, the merchandise, and the animated TV series. Each and every episode of the classic 1980s series is covered and examined. Plus, Mark Arlen covers how Pac-Man has been honored on various anniversaries, including the 40th anniversary in 2021. A fun read for casual and hardcore Pac-Man and video game fans alike, featuring many character model sheets and other images. Available online through Bear Manor Media, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. Get your copy today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. As the pandemic is now lifting somewhat, I am making more personal appearances at shows in Oregon and California. Check my Facebook page as to where I might be next, usually working with Lee's Comics. I'm getting closer to finishing my Mad My Turtles books. Another Monkeys book is on the horizon, as well as a book about TV animation studios. And look for more articles from me in Back Issue, Alter Ego, and Hogan's Alley, and various guest appearances on other podcasts, including those by Ed Rising, Hudson Ranney, Dennis Ball, Phil Hall, and others. My Pac-Man book is my latest release. Look for my Disney book and my Warren Kremer book coming soon. 
On today's show, we have a writer who is here to discuss his books, The Colors of Collis and Double Entendre, The Parallel Lives of Mae West and Ray Bourbon. Here he is, Patrick C. Byrne. Hi, this is Mark Arnold at Fun Ideas Podcast, and today we have a special person that uh, has written two books on very different subject matters. Uh, one is on the opera singer Maria Callas, and the one, the other one is about uh, the double entendre lives, uh, parallel lives of Mae West and Ray Bourbon. I hope that's how you pronounce his name, or Bourbon. <laughs> uh-huh. You can make it grand if you want to. Okay. And but we'll be talking about both books, and uh, here he is, the author Patrick C. Byrne. How are you today? I'm great. Glorious weather here. Hope it's the same where you are. Yep. I'm up here in Springfield, Oregon. I think I I saw uh, that you're in Kansas. That's right. But I'd much rather be in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice sunny day today. It's probably about seventy degrees, I guess. So it's not too bad. So great place. <laughs> So, um, you've written two books that I know about. Uh, one was uh, uh, The Colors of Callus, Reflections of an Icon, and it looks like it came out in 2002, is that correct? That's right, sir. It okay. came out in 2002. And um, I guess what I usually ask a lot of my uh, guests is just tell me a little bit about yourself and how yeah. you got interested into writing a book. Oh, uh, writing has always fascinated me. I graduated from uh, Rockhurst uh, College, and I sort of majored in writing and uh, literature. I um, didn't really get up the nerve to write a book until many years later. And, of course, I had always been advised, write what you know about. I'm not big on fiction. Mm-hmm. So I did. I've always been a big opera aficionado and a big Maria Callas fan. So that's what prompted uh, the book on Maria Callas. And I've actually seen her in person several times and met her. Uh, um, it took me about five years of research to put it all together. Um, and I worked with, very interestingly, uh, a gentleman named Taylor Perot. He's my co-author. Mm-hmm. And he was originally uh, Lana Turner's manager. Oh. And I met him at, at a play in New York about Maria Callas. And the play is called uh, Masterclass. It's written by McNally. And it's the story of Maria Callas teaching opera at Juilliard. Academy, um, and I met him in the lobby, and we got to talking, and he said, uh, I'm Lana Turner's manager, of course she had passed away by then, and he said, I've written a book about her, and I'd like to write something about a celebrity, and he said, you seem to know a lot about Maria Callas, and he said, would you co-write a book with me, and I said, well, yes, but you're going to have to contribute something other than your name. <laughs> <laughs> Which he did. It turned out uh, Lana Turner was a good friend of Eva Gardner, mm-hmm. and Eva Gardner, of all things, was a good friend of Maria Callas. So wow. he had some really juicy anecdotes about okay. the two. Okay, because I was wondering how the connection was there. I, I did notice that he was uh, uh, in, you know, uh, with uh, Lana Turner, and I was like, how does this connect? <laughs> so well, he's very much of a bon vivant and a big gossip monger. So you know, he picked up everything when he was in Hollywood. So, mm-hmm. uh, but Ava Gardner became 
friends with Maria Callas when Maria Callas was on her farewell tour mm-hmm. of the United States in 1974. And that's, that's how the connection came together. And it, it, it helped me get published by having a published author as a co-author. Mm-hmm. Did you know the process of anything on how to write a book, or did he tell you oh, all the ropes, yeah. basically? No, I, I knew more about it than he did, frankly. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I had I had really dabbled in writing for a long time, but it never submitted anything. And uh, after I spent, uh, as I said, almost five years uh, collecting and researching and putting together and interviewing people who knew Maria Callas. And in fact, there's a, he's passed away, but a very famous gentleman who lives or lived in Kansas City, was quite prominent, uh, socialite, very wealthy. And he is responsible for having brought Maria Callas to Kansas City in 1959, at which time I saw her at uh, the local concert she did. Mm. And I was only 16 years old. Mm. And uh, luckily, he lived long enough for me to interview him. And he had traveled with her, so he had some really nice personal anecdotes about her. She's very colorful, um, as most divas are. Yeah. <laughs> she seemed to be the absolute diva. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess the question is, now I've heard of Maria Callas, and I'm not a huge opera fan, but at least I've heard of her. And, you know, I'm aware of, and I've seen a few operas in my lifetime and stuff like that, but what attracted you to her and her specifically? Incredibly um, passionate, dramatic singer. She wasn't like, and plus she was slender and beautiful, very glamorous. At a time when so many of the uh, (laughs) opera divas looked like boxcars, you know, they just stand there and sing and wave one arm up and down. She became very much involved in, in the drama in the opera. She was much like, uh, let's say, uh, Anna Magnani, an Italian movie star, very fiery, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand uh, she, in the reading a little brief background about Maria's life, uh, she started out rather heavy and kind Very of dowdy. Uh, so, <laughs> like a pack, a pack of <laughs> so I guess, um, you know, do you have information of, you know, why she was that way in the first place? And then what prompted her to decide to become slender and uh, more elegant over well, the years? She had a kind of unhappy childhood. She had a stage mother like Gypsy. Mm-hmm. In the musical, very pushy. They were from Greece. Mm-hmm. And uh, Maria sort of indulged her eating habits because the mother was not motherly or kind like you would expect a parent to be. Uh, they lived in Greece, and she pushed her into the... Uh, conservatoire there in Athens for opera singers and lied about her age, said she was 17. <laughs> she was actually 13, but she was Ooh. a big girl. And she, once she opened her mouth, they all realized she was had a fabulous voice, and she became the star of the conservatory. <laughs> she came to the United States, uh, very young, probably 20, and 
I was auditioned at the Metropolitan Opera, but she was so heavy. They and they offered her the role of uh, Cho Cho San in the opera Madame Butterfly, mm-hmm. and of course that character has got to be petite Japanese, you know, geisha <laughs> girl. Yeah. Well, Maria was smart enough. She said, "I'm not going on stage, you know, weighing 300 pounds and trying to be a geisha girl." So she actually turned down the Metropolitan Opera, but. She was lucky enough to get a contract through an agent in New York to sing at uh, the arena in Verona, and that launched her career. She created a sensation. And, you know, they were accepting at the time of a plump prima donna. Mm-hmm. But she married a millionaire while she was there, and he was much older than her. Mm-hmm. And he got her contracts all over Italy. And mm-hmm. she decided if she was going to be viable as, as a stage persona, she took off, oh, 160 pounds. And wow. beca- she's five feet eight and became a, like a fashion model, absolutely gorgeous. Was there any secret to how she did it? Because, you know, there's all sort of different diets and things like that, or did she just stop eating or something? <laughs> well, like... As we say now, there's so much false information, even in in my extensive research. There was a rumor she had ingested a tapeworm. (laughs) I read that, and and I I was going to ask you about that, too. That's not not true. Okay. (laughs) But it makes good copy. Mm Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, she did it by dieting. She ate mostly small amounts of raw meat, which I would be afraid to do, hmm. and salads, and drank lots of water, and exercised, and, and took the weight off. Hmm. Now, backing up a little bit, um, did she have any real formal training, or how did she know she could oh, sing? Oh, yes, Okay, yes. okay. She trained uh, when they took her to the conservatory in Athens, and oh. it was during the war, of all things. Uh, there were very famous uh, voice teachers there from uh, La Scala, which mm-hmm. is the big uh, Italian opera house. And she was lucky enough to get the uh, the mentorship of the old-time great singers. So her training was absolutely fabulous. You don't get that kind of training today. Right. And then as time went on, um, what I kind of gathered is... Uh, like after she lost the weight and she became basically a star, uh, she kind of got a little bit lazy, <laughs> if for lack of a better term, uh, in her well, singing. That Is that, that true? Happen, that didn't happen until later. Okay. Her, she really was a big, big star from about 1951 until 59. And you've probably heard this story. In 1959, she met Aristotle Onassis, who was married to Jacqueline Kennedy, who was the ultimate gold digger. (laughs) And uh, she got into what they call Jet Set Society, and he put her on the yacht, and he drug her all over the world, and she stopped practicing and singers can't stop practicing any more than dancers can stop practicing Mm -hmm. so in a sense she did get lazy but then of course he dumped her for jackie o and then (laughs) it had been years since she'd really sung and she made a comeback but it was extremely difficult i saw her in 1965 when she made the comeback at the metropolitan opera in the role of tosca Uh and she was absolutely fabulous because she was a great actress but she did have to struggle with the music Hmm. 
you know, the voice is a muscle, and if you don't keep it in shape. And then she toured the world in 1973 and 74 in what they called the farewell concerts. She did 44 concerts worldwide, Mm -hmm. and I saw several of those, and I even, (laughs) I guess I can say this, recorded them. (laughs) Oh, that's fine. (laughs) And even released them on CD. I had a little record company called Umbra which mm-hmm. means shadow, uh, and didn't get in trouble over it, at least not yet. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think now, you know, it's like, I don't know, wouldn't it be kind of public domain or something like that anyway? Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you don't want to record an operatic performance in an opera house. Right. Because they'll come after you. But <laughs> if you record a singer in concert, they don't seem to mind. In fact, they're usually flattered mm-hmm. that, you know, people care. Mm-hmm. So. so what was the difference on her singing? I mean, it's like uh, you know, you're saying she was kind of pushing. So uh, if, if you can explain how it sounded, like you said you saw her in 59, which was like during her prime, versus, say, 74, which was... Right, right. Well, she... The upper register, she was uh, a coloratura soprano. Mm-hmm. She could sing very high, intricate music, hit an E flat. Uh, she sang operas like Lucia di Lamamor and Ipuritani. You have to be, she had, but she had a very big, hefty voice, but she could still go up with it, which is very unusual. But uh, at, at the final concerts, they transposed the music down. Uh, I'm, a friend of the gentleman who was her accompanist, Robert Sutherland. Mm-hmm. I've met him many times in the UK, and he's written a book about the concerts. It's really very interesting. It's called Diaries of a Friendship. Um, he was a marvelous musician, and she was too, and if she knew she wasn't going to hit a note, he transposed the whole thing down mm. and knocked it so she didn't have to scream. Mm. Well, it sounds like a lot of or age, aging rock stars who have their uh, songs uh, lowered to lower keys and things like that so they can continue to sing. But um, it, it seems like, was it just basically practice, or did some of it have to do with age? Granted, she wasn't very old, but still, she was older than she was. Older and had not sung. You know, I would go 9, 10, 12 months without a performance. You simply can't, and she wouldn't practice. Oh. You cannot do that. You just cannot. Uh, female voices tend to age out starting in the 40s. Uh, and it's rare for a prima donna to sing after 50, 55. Although I knew one prima donna named Magda Olivero who sang till she was 90. Oh, wow. I mean, but. <laughs> She practiced all the time. Yeah. You know, she was like an athlete. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. You said you met her a few times. Did you actually talk to her and have, like, conversation? Or was it just, like, well, polite handshake and, like, hey, you know. You, know. You, you, go, you go backstage and there's a line of people. You don't okay. get to... Yeah, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I knew what to say, and I even took a uh, an LP, you know, remember LP records, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, an album, and had her sign it, which uh, I have framed in in my music room. Um, she very gracious to her public, and she was savvy enough to know that, you know, they're the ones who buy the records. By the way, she's the largest. 
largest selling female opera star in history. Mm-hmm. She's up there with Pavarotti. Her records still sell. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody in current opera that would even compare at this yes. point? Yes. There's a, a diva at the Metropolitan Opera called Sandra Rodvanovsky. Mm. Uh, very similar to Maria Callas. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful voice and uh, very well trained. And she's, I believe she's approaching 50 and she's still knocking them dead. Sells out. Mm. Uh, I've only seen her once, but she's quite good. Um, unlike that Anna Netrebko person. <laughs> <laughs> Quite vulgar, quite vulgar. (laughs) Now, you are a a reviewer, and you have a regular uh, column. What's the name of the column? Well, it's the Belgian Opera Guide. Uh Uh, It's online. Well, I haven't done anything for a couple of years. Uh, Unfortunately, with the pandemic, I didn't go see any operas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No travel. Yeah. Sit at home and watch the the Met on PBS. <laughs> but um, in the time you were writing it, I mean, did you write about uh, all sorts of performers and all sorts of operas? What what was what were your columns typically about? Oh uh, well, I interviewed I think seven or eight famous singers uh-huh. uh, uh, who are, they love being interviewed. You know that that keeps their name alive. Some of them were retired. Uh, um, and also, I would review any opera that I happened to see, you know, in person, you know, in Chicago, or like in the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden in London. Uh, anything I saw, I always took notes, and, mm-hmm. and as I say, sometimes even recorded it, not just to, you know, refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. And also, you uh, are have been a record producer. How did yes. that come about? Just because you have your <laughs> recordings, or was it uh, something you were aspiring to do? Well, it's interesting. When I went to see Maria Callas in 1974, uh, I followed her around the country, by the way, from mm-hmm. uh, Boston to Chicago to Dallas to New York. Anyway, I would record the, uh, I had a little Sony recorder, you know how they used to make them, oh, yeah. and I would record the concert just for my own use. And I had a friend that was a sound engineer here in Kansas City, he works at the conservatory, and he's a musician, and he he said, oh, how were the concerts? And I said, oh, here, I'll play you the tape. And he said, oh, he said, I know a uh, uh, CD uh, manufacturer here in town, why don't you put that on... Uh, manufacture it, and, and uh, he said their sound engineers can plump it up, you know, and clean it up, get rid of the extraneous noise, and he said, I have a friend that will design the CD cover for you. Hmm. Well, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I just jumped right in and did it, and then I joined the Maria Callas International Club in London, and they had a magazine published three times a year, and so they were going to have a gala to honor Maria Callas. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Royal Opera House. And the gentleman who uh, was the director of the uh, magazine said, are you going to come over? And I said, well, yes, I wouldn't miss it. Mm-hmm. And I said, and by the way, I've got a recording of her live singing at the uh, Boston Symphony Hall. And he said, oh, my God, bring it. So, 
I brought over an empty suitcase full and uh, released them uh, at the gala. You know, they, I had a table set up, and well, good Lord, I sold every one of them in five minutes. Hmm. And uh, then I found um, a distributor in New York who carried them at Tower Records. Hmm. Well, the next thing I knew, I was a manufacturer, and I'm actually a hairdresser. I mean, you couldn't get further away <laughs> from what I got into. That's funny. <laughs> But um, it says that ultimately you did like six releases of Maria Callas recordings. Is that correct? I did. <laughs> now, some of them I bought the live tapes okay. from, you know, there's an underground of that. Uh, I will tell on myself. Um, <laughs> I had a friend that ran a, a record store in New York City, and he sold these live performances under the counter, you know, if they were of a, from an opera house. Yeah. Well, he had a recording of Maria Callas doing Tosca in 1965, mm -hmm. and he said, I'll sell it to you. Well, I bought it for, I won't tell you what I paid for it, but too much. And I thought, well, I've spent that much, I may as well release it. Well, I found uh, another manufacturer that did it, and a, and a uh, designer who did a beautiful package. It was a double CD, you know, with uh, all sorts of information and photos and things, and uh, <clears throat> Luckily, we had sold out the first run when I got a cease and desist letter <laughs> from the Metropolitan Opera. <laughs> Dear Mr. Byrne, cease and desist, and if you have any material left, please send us. Well, I couldn't because we'd sold every every single copy of the damn thing. So. Mm. And, of course, I didn't manufacture it anymore. I didn't want to go to court. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So I'm sure that is highly collectible at this point if you're trying to... Uh, it's amazing. Well, it's like my Callus book, The Colors of Callus. Uh -huh. It was in, in fact, a little tidbit when I first released it, uh, or when it was published on Amazon, it went to the bestseller list for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was continued to be in print, I think, until 2011 or 12. Then it went out of print because the publisher went bankrupt. Oh, and but it's now on it's on Amazon. You can buy it, but good grief, they're asking one hundred fifty, hundred and sixty dollars for it. And of course, I don't get a damn penny out of it. Hmm. Any chance of a reissue of it or a revised version? I thought about it, and I approached my publisher from the second book, mm -hmm. Bear Manor Media, mm -hmm. but and even though it's a celebrity book, they just thought it was too. Um, I don't know, intellectual. It's really not. It's full <laughs> of gossip. I tried to make it uh, kind of juicy and lighthearted, you know. Right. Otherwise, just talking about opera can be boring. <laughs> well, I'm friends with Ben Omart, and uh, you know many of my books are published by Bear Manor, so I might nudge him and say, hey, give the book a chance, come on. <laughs> I think so, too, and I would, I would re-script it. Yeah, I've got a lot more stuff to add to it, okay. and I take out some of the sort of uh, grandiose stuff that my co-author thought should have been in there. He was <laughs> a little bit of the uh, pinky finger up when you drink tea time. <laughs> um, did he add more of like the scandalous stuff, like you, you mentioned the affairs with Aristotle no, I, Onassis, I, I did, or I did you all had that? Oh, okay, <laughs> I did all that. He would. 
he would write long descriptions of how she would stand by her uh, window in her beautiful Paris apartment and gaze at the moon, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but there isn't much of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so during the latter part of her life, which she died at a relatively young age of 53, is that correct? Something like That's that? That's yeah. right. She yeah. had a heart attack. But she uh -huh. was taking... <clears throat> prescriptions, shall we say, okay. <laughs> that weren't illegal, stimulants. For her to do those concerts, they would okay. give her injections. Okay. You know, they used to call them B12 Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it the vitamin B12 shot? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the lace with the amphetamine like JFK did. Right. And that gets to your heart as you get older. Mm -hmm. And that poor lady, you know, had a heart attack and died. Now, at the time of her death, you said she was she did her farewell concerts in 74. She passed away in 77. So right. was she truly thinking farewell in 74, or did she think someday no. I may be back? Yeah. She was practicing. She was using the concerts for practice. Hmm. She was going to make a comeback, but <clears throat> she couldn't quite. She was a... She was afraid to come back, you know, because it's different singing a concert with just a pianist who can transpose at the last second to singing with a full orchestra and a fully staged opera and a tenor who's going to try to out-sing you. Mm -hmm. So, but there were, there were stories of her making comebacks, and she was thinking about doing Carmen. Which she was fabulous because basically she had become a mezzo soprano. Mm. You know, she lost the high notes, mm. and she would have been good as Carmen because she was fiery. But it didn't didn't happen. You know, Zeffirelli made a movie about her. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really not very good. I think he missed <laughs> the opportunity to. Yeah. Well, it was miscast. Tanny are down didn't look anything like Maria Callas. They could have chosen... Uh, I think they should have gotten a Greek actress or a, an mm -hmm. Italian. Yeah. Uh, they recently passed away. Irene Pappas might have been a good choice. <laughs> oh, perfect. I adore her. <laughs> but uh, in any case, yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen that film. I've seen a lot of Zeffirelli films, but just not that one, I don't think. But I wouldn't bother. Oh, okay, I was going to say, is there a good documentary on Maria or no? Oh, lots of them. Okay. Lots of, lots of them. Uh, they're all available at, at Amazon. Just okay. click in Alice and you'll get a mix of CDs and there'll even be VHS documentaries still floating around. Okay. <clears throat> and of course, there's a limited amount of video available mm -hmm. to to look at and they kind of rehash it some of them go for the scandalous part and i like the ones that tell the story of the life and the hardships and plus the personal life which was really kind of screwed up yeah well as far as performances that are uh, available uh, i mean she only appeared on say like ed sullivan show correct is that it or is she on well a few others? no she sang at a gala in front of the president of France in 1958 okay. in the Legion of Honor, and she did an enormous concert of arias, and then she did the whole second act of Tosca in costume, and anybody that would be interested in Callis should buy that because it's, they've restored, it was from a, you know, a television program. Okay. They've restored the sound and the visual, and it's really magnificent. Okay. And she was in full voice then, so. Okay.
Yeah, that's what I'd have to check out if I was going to investigate further. Because I think you'd enjoy it. Yeah. And it's very grand. All the uh, Brigitte Bardot was there and all the, <laughs> you know, the movie stars and their furs and tiaras. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, recorded originally for television, you said? or was it? You know, no, it was <laughs> just recorded and released on television. Uh, that originally on VHS, and then of course EMI, who's her record label, mm-hmm. got a hold of it and said that it was their property, but it really isn't. <laughs> they didn't have a contract with her for anything video, it was just sound. Uh, they released it, and then several people who are manufacturers have gotten it and improved it, and it's, it's really lovely to look at. Mm-hmm. Now, in her lifetime, did she have any aspirations to do Anything else, like say, if you know this uh, um, uh, comeback didn't work out, did she have any yes. aspirations to yes. doing acting or any other work? Yes. Oh, okay. She made she made a movie for uh, Pasolini, who was a oh. very famous <laughs> Italian director, mm-hmm. and they didn't make an opera, but she chose the story of Medea. Hmm. Based on the fact that she was famous singing the opera Medea. You know, Medea is quite a character, quite a Greek uh, myth character mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, you know, killed her children and <laughs> did all sorts of things. Right. But it's a fascinating film. And they did it. Uh, Pasolini's very graphic. And um, they did tremendous research and they put it in the original locations that the, you know, Jason and the, and the Golden Fleece. Mm. They did it in those locations and her costumes are barbaric and <laughs> she does a bang up job. I mean, it's, it's just, just as a movie. Mm-hmm. It's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. So you think that might have been a, a career path for her had she lived? Yes, yeah. I think she could have easily been a stage actress because she had that voice, you mm-hmm. know. Singers have wonderful speaking voices. Right. And, and she was good looking, so. I've noticed that on, on certain people. It's like, I don't know if they sing, but they have that certain voice, and they go, I bet they sing. <laughs> you know, even well, if it isn't it, professional, it's like they have that type of voice that they probably could yeah. sing her. I've got several friends, a uh, couple of retired opera singers, and the, the minute they open their, their mouth, you know, <laughs> all they'd have to do is hum a little and they could sing. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, we'll probably come back to Maria near the end here, but uh, let's shift gears to your other book. Okay, um, so this one was uh, recently released in 2019, yes. and I'll give the title A Double Entendre. The Parallel Lives of Mae West and Ray Bourbon, or Bourbon, or how you pronounce it? Bourbon, just Bourbon. like the oh, Okay, I wasn't sure. I thought he might have had an affected way and say Bourbon or something. I don't know. Well, he yeah. could. He could get very grand. And he that's not really his name. And he claimed <laughs> that his mother, who had a child out of wedlock, he was the bastard child, <laughs> had he'd lived in France in a convent. And... She was going to be a nun, and she got knocked up. And, of course, they shipped her off to Texas to some (laughs) couple that wanted to adopt the baby. And uh, he said that the father of the child was a descendant of the French Bourbon royal family, which, of course, is a whole lot of horse hockey. (laughs) Now, this this guy is, like, an interesting character, to put it mildly. And it's like... Uh, you know, I'm like reading his little bio, you know, uh, and I'm going, 
Okay. First of all, you don't know what's exactly true, considering, you know, he tended to exaggerate and stuff. So how did you navigate through all this to kind of reasonably figure out what was the truth and what wasn't? I knew him personally. Okay. When I was in hairdressing academy many years ago, <laughs> he was appearing in Kansas City at a really world-famous uh, female impersonator uh, venue called the Jewel Box. Hmm. And he was the star, and he was in his, not dotage, but he was approaching, he was late 60s, getting close to 70, mm-hmm. and uh, I would go every single night to watch him. He was the funniest man I think I have ever seen. <laughs> he was a lot like Milton Berle in drag. Mm. Very humorous man, and he'd been all over the world. He'd done the command performance for uh, the abdicated King uh, Edward and uh, Mrs. Simpson. Uh, he worked in Cuba with the mafia. Uh, he worked with uh, Josephine Baker in Paris at the Follies. He had a fabulous life, but I got to see him, you know, when he was older, and. Um, <clears throat> I approached him one night because after the shows were over, they'd come out and sit at the bar and drink. And I got up enough nerve one night to go over and I said, you always talk about Mae West. And I said, I love Mae West. And I said, uh, did you really work with her? And he said, oh, yeah, well, we got to be friends. Hmm. And, oh, my goodness. This, he worked with Mae West on Broadway in a big mm-hmm. hit show. They toured the country. Mm-hmm. It was called Catherine Was Great. May wrote it, and of course she starred in it, and it was Catherine of Russia, mm-hmm. and of course May thought she was great, and and uh, Ray Berman played her hairdresser, Florian, which was <laughs> typecasting, I mean, it was wonderful. <laughs> now, how and did, she, movies, how did she find, how did May West discover him? I mean, what was he doing okay. before that? May West started in Bodville right. as a child. Yeah. And, you know, Vaudeville began to fade away, uh, and she wasn't really breaking in and being a big star. She was incredibly ambitious. Everything was about Mae West. And her mother had some money, and she said, why don't you write a play and star in the play and, and present yourself as, you know, it's a little more legitimate than Vaudeville and Baggy Pants Comedians. So May wrote a a play called S-E-X. Yes. (laughs) Well, that caused a riot, but it sold out for a year. And she decided to write another play. And she said, I'm going to write. She liked female impersonators. She used to copy the way they acted and dressed. Mm -hmm. And so she wrote a play called The Drag. (laughs) Well, she went down to Greenwich Village to one of the gay clubs where they had a lot of drag queens and she put out the word she was doing an audition for a play mm-hmm. but they had to be impersonators well she went down there the night of the auditions there were about 60 of them and Ray Bourbon was one of the ones she picked out to be in the drag hmm. and um, they became friends after that um, she, she of course went on to Hollywood when Bob Bell died out mm-hmm. uh, Ray even ended up going to Hollywood, but before that, he worked in Long Island at Vitagraph Studios, which were silent movies. Hmm. He met uh, Rudolph Valentino there. Wow. <laughs> oh, he had a phenomenal life. And then he went to Hollywood, 
And he, there are several movies you can still buy that he has small parts in. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you've heard of Rudolph Valentino's Blood and Sand yeah, film yeah. Mm -hmm. about the bullfighter. Mm -hmm. Well, the opening scene is Ray Bourbon plays a bullfighter who gets gored <laughs> and dies in the arms of Rudolph Valentino. Wow. It's really amazing. I'll have to see that again. <laughs> and then he made, you remember Gold Diggers from 1935? Yes. Well, Ray was in the sequel, Gold Diggers of 1937. Right, which I think I've and seen then, too. I think I've seen all those Gold Digger films. <laughs> and then he made a he was in, uh, he had a small, very small part in, uh, no, I won't say small, it was a featured part. Um, he made a, a film called Hip Zip Hooray. Hmm. For RKO, and he plays this mincing, swishy fashion designer, which was perfect typecasting. <laughs> and it's 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 a black and white sound film, and he's very funny in the part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I think you can still buy it. I'm not sure. A friend sent me a copy of it from London when it, he first found it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but he had a varied career. He could sing. He could be a stand-up comedian. He was also, uh, he got started in the music halls in London mm. because he was sent there by his stepfather. Mm. Uh, it's a long story, but Ray was born in, the, in Hudspeth, Texas, if you can imagine. <laughs> and his mother's husband died, or his, his adopted mother's husband died. Mm -hmm. Left a lot of money, and she got remarried, and the man she remarried didn't like Ray because he was very effeminate. Mm. And he had a friend in London that ran a boys' school for kids that had problems. So they shipped Ray off to London while he took up with this gay professor who used to take him to the music halls at night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, music halls do a lot of female impersonation. They call it a dame. Mm-hmm. That's a word for drag. Well, right. he decided he wanted to do it. And the next thing you know, he auditioned and he got a job in the chorus. Yeah. And he worked for several years in the music halls. And then he came to America and tried to break into vaudeville in, you know, the first part of the last century. Mm. Now, I'm kind of curious because, uh, you know, just the general history of uh, these type of things. Uh, um was female impersonation accepted, or did he ever get uh, in any sort of legal trouble or anything else like that uh, over the course of his career? I mean, I know well, actually, he went to jail, but that's a totally different story, which we'll get to later. <laughs> yeah. No, vaudeville, vaudeville, an integral part of vaudeville was drag. Uh -huh. They'd either be, there were glamorous drags who, uh, the well, ladies in the audience would come to see them to emulate their passions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were comedic. Ray tended to be, although when he was young, he could be attractive. Uh, mm -hmm. But he was wonderful at com comedic uh, a drag, just excellent. So, uh, he could talk off the top of his head. So this was generally accepted by audiences and everything like that. Oh, a okay. big part okay. of God, very big part. I'm, I mean, I know cross dressing, you know, is, originates in Shakespeare's time, you know. So, sure. You know, sure. so at least, at least, you know, I don't know how you go back further, you know. But so, <laughs> but you know, it's like it's just kind of funny over. 
time, you know, sometimes it's acceptable, sometimes it's not, you know, it's like, you know, so I was just wondering during uh, the prudish earlier parts of the 20th century if that if he ever got into any sort of uh, trouble for Well, that you, didn't, you didn't walk about the streets or go into a cocktail lounge and drag. <laughs> They'd get you. Yeah. But as long as it was a show, it was a very accepted thing, yeah. very much accepted. Okay. In fact, the play, the drag, had something like 50 drag queens in it, and oh. they sang and danced and told dirty stories, and, you know, mm-hmm. the audiences lapped it up. Mm-hmm. But I will say, when he went to Hollywood in the 30s, mm-hmm. you know how politicians are. They were going to clean up the gay bars and the, and the, the lavender mob, as they called it. Yeah. And they would raid the gay clubs and, and tell them that they could appear on stage, but they couldn't wear their drag outfits. Well, they were out of jobs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> um... So beyond that, uh, did he do any other types of work, or is it just basically stage film and uh, that type of thing, or did he ever work in radio or anything like that? He did a little radio. I don't think he did very much of it. Okay. Uh, he had an interesting voice. Mm-hmm. He recorded, uh, I wish we were being visual, he recorded 12 LP records, mm-hmm. which is a lot for a comedian, especially a gay comedian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think I've got some sitting here. Um, <laughs> what type of material? The, Is it spoken word? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, spoken and sung. Okay. And he wrote a lot of the ditties, as he called them. And they were at first sold under the counter mm. <laughs> because they were a little raunchy. But he didn't <laughs> use bad language. It was all double entendre. Hmm. Uh, I'm holding up a one of the albums right now. It's called Bourbon 100 Proof. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks like an old madam with a cigarette. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one called, uh, <laughs> I'll describe the cover. It's a very well-endowed gentleman in a pair of tight cowboy jeans <laughs> uh, with his legs apart. And Ray is behind him. And his legs are kind of like a frame around Ray, and it says, Ray Bourbon, a girl of the Golden West. (laughs) And he did one called Ladies of Burlesque, Mm -hmm. and he's standing in front of a theater marquee with his name, now appearing Ray Bourbon, world's foremost female impersonator. Mm Um he, he claimed to have had a sex change because that was kind of sensational in the 50s. <laughs> and his career was beginning to decline. And his agent said, you need to do something to get interest in publicity. So he said he went to Mexico and had a sex change. Mm-hmm. Of course, he didn't. Okay. But <laughs> it got him a lot of jobs. And he released an album called Let Me Tell You About My Operation. I'm looking for all it's worth, I guess. Yeah, and you know, a Variety magazine, which is you know the bible of of theater, they actually printed uh, uh, a headline that said Ray R A Y dash R A E. It was Ray after he was Ray. (laughs) Bourbon switches his sex allegiance. He's now a she. They said he's a Mexican standoff. So in later years, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, you you worked with Mae West, but did he keep in touch with Mae West or did he? Oh, yeah. So, you know, they were friends or pals up until 
Let's see. Did she pass away first? Or he passed away first in 1971. He passed okay. away first in okay. jail from okay. medical neglect. It was really sad, very okay. sad. He was arrested here in Kansas City. They sent uh, the sheriff up up to Kansas City and arrested him at the jewel box. It was a huge scandal. Mm. So you had already been conversing with him at that time. I mean, oh, yeah. were you we aware were of any uh, anything going on about, you know, and do you think it's true that he was accomplice to murder, since we're talking about this now? No, he really wasn't. Okay. He, was, he was a bit of a hoarder. Uh, he would take in stray animals, mm-hmm. you know, and take care of them. He was really kind-hearted man, and he never really had a, a significant other. It's mm. interesting. Um, but anyway, he would travel. He had this old station wagon and with a, a trailer he put on the back, and you know, drag queens had to kind of rough it, and they had to take uh, a contract wherever they could get one to perform. Mm. And he uh, was working at the drill box, but his contract had run out, and he was going down to somewhere in Texas to perform. I think it was on the border. And he always took his dogs with him in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Well, the car broke down in some small town. You know, he had some old broken-down station wagon. And he didn't know what to do with the dogs, and they couldn't fix the car. And he found a local vet who said, well, you can board them here, mm-hmm. and you get the money and come back and get them. So he got a bus and went back to Kansas City, started working the drill box again. And he went back to Texas, and I think he drove down and got another car and called the vet and said, you know, I want to get uh, get my dogs. And they said, well, we've disposed of all of them. Hmm. Well, he was furious, but he didn't know what to do. <clears throat> so he went back home to heartbroken to Kansas City. And at the time, he unfortunately had got mixed up with a hustler, a young hustler who was kind of taking money from him, and I don't know for favors or what. He never told me that. <laughs> uh, and the, and the, the, the hustler had another friend that was a hustler, and they made a little plot up to go down and rescue the dogs, and they thought that way they could blackmail Ray and get some money out of him if they said they had the dogs. Well, unfortunately, this young boy got into Ray's apartment, and Ray had a gun. Mm. And took the gun, unbeknownst to Ray, went down there with this guy, confronted the veterinarian to get the dogs, and there was a tussle, and the gun went off and killed the veterinarian. Ooh. But they never could figure out which one of the boys killed him. Mm. Well, they traced the gun. It was registered to Ray Bourbon. And of course, the kids spilled the beans, and then they said Ray had paid them to come down and get the. Of course, he didn't. Uh, <laughs> and they put them in jail, too. Okay. Uh, and then they came and got Ray and put him in jail in Brownwood, Texas, of all people, places. And it's so funny. I've got a friend who has a restaurant in Brownwood, and he's a Ray Bourbon fan. <laughs> And he has a big cutout of Ray Bourbon on the door of the restaurant, and he has a, a sandwich named after Ray Bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so at that time, I mean, you, you said that uh, he wasn't treated well when he was in prison. Is that correct? Not at all. Hmm, what and, happened? Uh, well, they had, 
it was kind of an open door thing. They knew he was harmless, and he hadn't been to, to trial yet for the sentencing. <clears throat> and he, the jail was real old, and he had kind of a, a room upstairs that kept him locked in. But there was a phone downstairs in the office that they would let him use if he requested it. And he went down one evening. That apparently the jailer had felt sorry for him. And he was going to use the phone, and for some reason, he stepped outside. Uh, and it was in the winter, and it was very cold, and the door slammed shut, and he couldn't get back in, and they had gone to bed. They didn't hear him, hmm. and he nearly froze to death. He crawled into a truck that was in the parking lot and slept on the floor. They found him in the morning unconscious, hmm. and they did not treat him. He had diabetes and hmm. some other things, and he got pneumonia. They really just let him die, which is very sad. Hmm. Now, during that period, were you still in contact with him or no? No, I, I'd lost. I didn't know where they'd taken him. And uh, I read things in some of the, we had a magazine called The Phoenix here in town. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I had some, I knew some of the other drags that worked there, Carrie Davis and uh, uh, different ones. And I heard stories from them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was very, really kind of a tragic ending, too. He had a very colorful, uh, and certainly didn't harm anyone, had a lovely, right. uh, uh, kind of a pioneering gay life. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, back in a time when it was a little iffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Put it mildly, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why I was asking those questions. I was just kind of curious, oh, sure. you know. Because, you know, sure. I grew up in a, you know, I'm 56, but uh, I grew up in a lifetime where pretty much everything was either acceptable or getting to be acceptable. So, you know, yeah. I, you know it, everything was like in the past of, you know, uh, this happened and this happened for, you know, and so I'm like, hmm, you know, so I'm always curious about how things have changed over the years in regards to situations like that. So, Well, you know. I'm a... I'm a flower child, let's put it that way. I, <laughs> I really came out in the early 60s, and that's when it all exploded. Mm -hmm. And Kansas City was known for being open because all the gay bars were run by the mafia, including the Jewel Box. I hmm. won't mention names. Yeah. And they paid off all the police. Yeah. Well, that's uh, interesting, but, you know, is uh, you know, and I don't, you know, it, the thing that's funny is, you know, the perception yeah, you know, I'm from California. The perception is like the middle of the country, like Kansas, is all highly conservative. There wouldn't be anything like that there or whatever. You know? Well, now, but, uh, there's, Kansas City is like Minneapolis-St. Paul. You've got Kansas City, Missouri, yeah. and Kansas City, Kansas. Well, yeah. Kansas City, Kansas is the poor sister. <laughs> Kansas City, Missouri is, was jumping, still is, big... Uh, it was a mafia center, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was in the bar business, worked in speakeasy, so I could even write a book about that. Yeah. And uh, all I knew all the mobsters that ran all the gay clubs. Yeah. Wide open, you could dance and carry on and do all what, sorts of things. Yeah. Well, where I kind of found the inklings of such things for me is, um, if you're familiar with Frank Zappa's first album, is called Freak Out. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's talking about you know you know people freaking out, and he mentions Kansas, he mentions Minnesota, he mentions Washington D.C., and I go, well, those are interesting places to mention. And so you know, me being a, an historian as I am, it's like you know I investigated further, and I go, huh, okay, it's not as stodgy or backwards right. as I'm led to believe. You know, these people, places are happening and stuff like that. So, you know. So. You know, my, 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 my entire family is from Dublin, Ireland, Irish Catholics, and I was sent to private boys' academies and, and high schools and, and universities. And, and But my father was extremely liberal. And I remember the night I told him I was gay, I, I was 17. He looked at me and said, well, I've always known that. <laughs> what took he you so long? Care. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if I have any other uh, uh, bourbon things. Um I did write this down, so maybe you can talk a little bit. It's it's moving back to like 1932. Um, right. Uh, boys will be girls at Tate's Cafe in San Francisco. Oh, um, there's my a reason God, I wrote that was, down, and I forgotten. So you can refresh my memory. <laughs> that's a radio program. Okay. That they did, and Ray was the star. Uh huh. And one night there were about 12 drag queens that were in the chorus and Ray singing and you know they're in full regalia on stage and all of a sudden from behind the curtains comes about 15 San Francisco Vice Squad police in uniform <laughs> and dragged the queens off the stage screaming and threw them in the in the paddy wagons and took them away and the uh, the radio audience thought it was part of the show <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and they had tipped off the photographers. So the, there's lots of photographs of the poor drag queens being, you know, dragged into the jail with their wigs flying off and their eyelashes falling off. And mm -hmm. uh, it didn't bother Ray at all. He left San Francisco and went back to Hollywood and got, he was in several movies there. Right. He was, he was in a movie that Nazimova made. Uh, about Salome. It was a black and white silent film. He was one of the courtiers. Bizarre movie. Valentino got him the part in the movie. You know, Valentino's wife was a lesbian. <laughs> she was having an affair with Nazimova. Uh, and, uh, he, like I said, he made several movies while he was there. He also had a nightclub for a while. Hmm. Where was that? Which, uh, it was in Hollywood. Oh. Uh, back when it was still kind of chic for the, uh, for the movie stars to go watch the drag shows in the gay clubs. Mm -hmm. You know, Randolph Scott and Cary Grant, they'd be hand in hand, arm in arm, sitting at one table. Joan Crawford, who's the biggest fag hag who ever lived, was at another <laughs> table. Tallulah Bankhead. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> It's interesting on that previous story is they got in trouble or raided in San Francisco because I lived in San Francisco during the 80s and 90s and, you know, they that's, had... The, the, that's the, a long time later. Yeah. And, you know, very open and everything like that. Like I said, it's just when I grew up. Um, and the the big uh, place uh, at the time was Finocchio's. That, uh, oh, yes. You know. Well, Ray worked at Finocchio's once. Hmm. Yeah, he was, 
in the middle age fairly well by then. Uh, he'd been with the touring company, and it had come to an end, and I think it came to an end in San Francisco. And he went and auditioned, and he worked there for several months. Hmm. That's where he met Tallulah Bankhead. Hmm. She came to see, you know, you can imagine Tallulah. <laughs> she, she came to see the show, and she was so fascinated with the whole thing, she went backstage. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, you all have to come to my uh, suite at, I can't remember, a famous hotel in San Francisco. I'm having an all-night party. So they, <laughs> all the drags went over, and she was snorting coke and, and uh Drinking and telling dirty stories, and I guess it went on all night. She was quite a character. I bet it was the St. Francis Hotel. I don't know. It was the St. Oh, okay. Francis. Thank you. She had a whole suite. <laughs> I was just guessing. I said, what was around then and probably the yeah. likely place, and so I just guessed that. So. Uh, Kalula right. is a character unto herself. That's funny. <laughs> So, um, let's see. Um, You know, we mentioned Mae West a few times. Did you ever meet her or see her perform? No, and it's interesting. My book kind of starts out with how I got interested in Mae West. Mm -hmm. My dad was a huge Mae West fan because she had made movies in the 30s and 40s. Right. (laughs) Well, I didn't see those. I wasn't born until 1942. Mm Mm-hmm. And by then, her movie career was over. Right. But my dad was always like, oh, Mae West, and he'd do all these imitations. Owning a bar and being a bartender, he could do WCF. He could do all these voices. Right. And he was a singer on the radio at one time back in the day. But anyway, <laughs> uh, when TV first came out, I was a little kid. And, you know, you had your little black and white TV. Well, to fill up space in the evening, they would have old movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I finally got to see Mae West. And I was like, oh, my goodness, look at this. <laughs> so that's how I really got interested in Mae West. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, as, we, as it went on, you could buy the movies and watch them. But, no, I, I would, unfortunately never met her. I certainly would like to have. I know a couple of people who have. Yeah. And she was something else. Yeah. Well, I know she did those two later films, uh, Myra Breckenridge uh, and uh, Sex Dad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of corny, never... but, you know, I still. <laughs> I, I actually, actually enjoy Sextet, even though it is very campy and corny. <laughs> I think Myra Breckenridge is actually a, a fairly decent film. It was a high-budget, big star. Sextet was made on a shoestring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating. It's like watching uh, a mummy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good she way to put it. So, yes. She yes. was so padded. And I know Edith had the famous... Uh, costume designer still designed her gowns even for sex death. and Edith had I saw her on an interview on Dick Cavett I think it was said it wasn't like being a seamstress and sewing a dress for her it was like being a sculptor and constructing it because what you see is her body is all inside the dress it was she was a little old lady by then yeah, it was all yeah. Bald, you know interestingly she never showed anything she didn't even show her ankles right and she you was know, short, her, too, wasn't she, like 4'11 or something like that? Oh, she was, that's why the hair kept getting taller and taller. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't think about it because you see her next to Cary Grant, you see her next to right. W.C. Fields, and, you know, it's just how they position somebody, you know, that she looks like a very tall person, you know. Nope. <laughs> well, 
if you've ever seen photographs of the shoes that they made specially for her, yeah. they were like eight-inch platforms. Mm -hmm. she, that's why she walked the way she did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it made her rotate. You know, she had those swivel hips. Well, she couldn't really, You never saw her run in a film <laughs> or actually dance. She just sort of stands there and, and uh, you know, gyrates. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah, the only one I can compare it to is maybe for the same situation, and she actually danced a little bit better, maybe as Carmen Miranda or something. She yeah. wore those extremely high platforms, yep. too. Yeah. <laughs> She's another wonderful character. <laughs> so, um, before I let you go, any other books that you are planning, or anything, other projects at this time, or... Well, it's interesting. I have a very good friend named Mark Spano, who is a film producer. Uh, he did a uh, award-winning documentary on Sicily a couple of years ago, and Mark's a good friend of mine, and he grew up in Kansas City, and he knew all, <laughs> he's an Italian gentleman, and he knew all the people that ran the gay bars, and he knew about the jewel box and the history. And when I wrote this book, uh, we talked a lot about it, and he wants to do a documentary on the jewel box, partially based on my book about Ray Bourbon. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, the pandemic came along. We had a local right. backer that was going to do it, but the backer got into financial trouble because of the pandemic, so we kind of have it on hold. But it's still a possibility, and some of the local drag queens, some of the older ones, sort of knew about Ray Bourbon, and they're willing to participate, and we wanted to do it as a, a, a semi-documentary with live actors and film clips and sound things, mm. and even some animation. Hmm. Yeah, that could be good. Yeah. I think so, too. Kind of do it like, uh, this is Elvis, and have Kurt Russell or whatever, you know. And so, oh, not yeah. Kurt Russell, yeah. not Kurt Russell, that was a different one. But the This is Elvis film, they had uh, recreated scenes and then actual footage and stuff like that. That's what I meant to right. say. Right, yeah. right. And, and the, the, my, my friend Mark is, is, is very uh, has a, a nice crew that really knows how to do that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. keep your okay. fingers and I also got a good friend that lives in Las Vegas. He used to be the director of the, uh, not Vegas, I'm sorry, Palm Springs Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And he has lots of connections with the film world, so we're all kind of pushing it. Hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Patrick. I just Absolutely to... delightful. I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, I guess this is the time, and I do this on every show, is if people want to get in contact with you or how do they get hold of your books or any other things that you may have to offer, any websites or any public appearances you might be making, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, uh, the, both books are still available. Uh, Double Entendre, The Parallel Lives of May West and Ray Bourbon is available as a collector's item on Amazon. It can be a little bit pricey. But the, uh, no, excuse me, the Maria Callas book is a collector's item. Okay. Uh, the Colors of Callas. The Double Entendre is very much available. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and you can get it uh, at various prices. It comes in hardback, softback, Kindle. Ebook, however you'd like to do it. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, if you anybody wants to talk to me, uh, they can contact me by email. And if we establish that we want to have a conversation, then we'll go ahead. And do you have and, a website the, too, or no? I don't. We took okay. it down. Okay. Yeah. We took it down. Um, my email is uh, O M B R A R E C D S at AOL dot com. Okay. And uh, are you making any personal appearances anywhere, or? Uh, well, I, I plan to do a couple of book things in Milwaukee. I have a friend there okay. uh, that was with NPR, uh, and I'm going to, uh, we've talked about me coming up uh, after the holidays, <laughs> if they don't have a blizzard. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, Milwaukee's a, a wonderful town for this sort of thing. Uh, they're very uh, involved in the arts on all levels, so... All right. Well, very good. And again, I want to thank you, Patrick C. Byrne, for being my special guest. Well, thank you so much. And uh, that wraps up another episode of the Fun Ideas Podcast. Well, good afternoon, and have a wonderful afternoon. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Have you got a minute? Good. Well, just sit down and relax and let me tell you about my operation. <laughs> oh, this is the real dirt. Of course I had it done. To all of you that know me, you might have seen it coming. <laughs> so this will be no surprise. Everyone asks me, how does it feel? Well, it feels just fine to me. I can be the woman I've always wanted to be. For the change, I went south of the border. It took me just days to pack. I arrived there with excess baggage, but I had a lot less coming back. There's been a change in the gender, a big change in me. From R-A-Y, I've changed to R-A-E. So if anyone should ask you, just feel free to say, There's been a change in Ray. Ay, they. There's been a change in Ray. Now, I can do many things as a woman I could never do as I was. I've been dropped with a man of distinction ad, so I'm dickering with maiden farm bras. Well, I could become an actress, star of stage and screen, replace Ethel Barrymore, and make the corn turn really green. <laughs> now, all this fuss about Marilyn and her ever-shifting gears, that poor little girl has stopped only one bus. Madge, I've been lousing up traffic for years. I could even pose for a calendar that would make Miss Monroe weep. And you can bet that when I'm around, that sleeping prince wouldn't sleep. Or I could be an actress. Or a female spy. Can't you just see me as Martha Harry Bourbon, a bat too gay to die? <laughs> I could be a spy in Suez and find out what NASA's doing, keep those pilots happy, and keep those pipelines flowing. Of course, I could star in a show in Las Vegas, dressed like Dietrich and Net and Allure. In her case, they knew what was caught in the net. <laughs> in my case, they'd never be quite sure. I could give Gina a run for her money. Oh, Lala, frigate a girl, you are through. I'd love to swing on a trapeze. If Tony and Bert would swing, too. Of course, I won't tell you all of my secrets, just enough to let you find a hint in. 
But I can do more in a gown by Dior than I can in a suit by Jim Clinton. And I may not say anything completely to convince those doubting Thomases, whose suspicions are slightly shady. You may question some of the details, but <laughs> you cannot deny that I am a lady. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Patrick Seaburn, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 189 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.